Well, if you'd like to take up your Bibles again, we're reading from chapter 17 of the book of Isaiah, which is on page 580 of the Church Bibles. And it says this, an oracle concerning Damascus. Behold, Damascus will cease to be a city and will become a heap of ruins. The cities of Ara are deserted. They will be for flocks, which will lie down and none will make them afraid. The fortress will disappear from Ephraim and the kingdom from Damascus. And the remnant of Syria will be like the glory of the children of Israel, declares the Lord of hosts. And in that day the glory of Jacob will be brought low, and the fat of his flesh will grow lean. And it shall be as when the reaper gathers standing corn, and his arm harvests the ears, and as when one gleans the ears of corn in the valley of Rephaim. Gleanings will be left in it, as when an olive tree is beaten, two or three berries in the top of the highest bow, four or five on the branches of a fruit tree, declares the Lord God of Israel. In that day, men will look to his maker, and his eyes will look on the Holy One of Israel. He will not look to the altars, the work of his hands. He will not look on what his own fingers have made, either the ashram or the altars of incense. In that day, their strong cities will be like the deserted places of the wooded heights and the hilltops which they deserted because of the children of Israel, and there will be desolation. For you have forgotten the God of your salvation. You have not remembered the rock of your refuge. Therefore, though you plant pleasant plants and sow the vine branch of a stranger, though you make them grow on the day that you plant them and make them blossom in the morning that you sow, yet your harvest will flee away in a day of grief and incurable pain. Ah, the thunder of many peoples, they thunder like the thundering of the sea. Ah, the roar of nations, they roar like the roaring of mighty waters. The nations roar like the roaring of many waters, but he will rebuke them, and they will flee far away. Chase like chaff on the mountains before the wind, and whirling dust before the storm. At evening time behold terror, before morning they are no more. This is the portion of those who loot us and the lot of those who plunder us. Ah, land of whirring wings, that is beyond the rivers of Cush, which sends ambassadors by the sea, in vessels of papyrus, on the water. Go, you swift messengers, to a nation tall and smooth, to a people feared near and far, a nation mighty and conquering, whose land the rivers divide. All you inhabitants of the world, you who dwell on the earth, when a signal is raised on the mountains, look. When a trumpet is blown, hear. For thus the Lord said to me, I will quietly look from my dwelling, like clear heat in sunshine, like a cloud of dew in the heat of harvest. For before the harvest, when the blossom is over, and the flower becomes a ripening grape, 
He cuts off the shoots with pruning hooks and the spreading branches he lops off and clears away. They shall all of them be left to the birds of prey of the mountains and to the beasts of the earth. And the birds of the prey will summer on them and all the beasts of the earth will winter on them. At that time tribute will be brought to the Lord of hosts from a people tall and smooth, from a people feared near and far, a nation mighty and conquering, whose land the rivers divide, to Mount Zion, the place of the name of the Lord of hosts. An oracle concerning Egypt. Behold, the Lord is riding on a swift cloud and comes to Egypt. And comes to Egypt. And the idols of Egypt will tremble at his presence, and the heart of the Egyptians will melt within them. And I will stir, stir up Egyptians against Egyptians, and they will fight each against another, and each against his neighbour, city against city, kingdom against kingdom. And the spirit of the Egyptians within them will be emptied out, and I will confound their counsel, and they will inquire of the idols and the sorcerers, and the mediums and the necromancers. And I'll give over the Egyptians into the hand of a hard master. And a fierce king will rule over them, declares the Lord God of hosts. And the waters of the sea will be dried up. And then a river will be dry and parched. And its canals will become foul. And the branches of Egypt's Nile will diminish and dry up. Reeds and rushes will rot away. There will be bare places by the Nile, on the brink of the Nile, and all that is sown by the Nile will be parched, will be driven away, and will be no more. The fishermen will mourn and lament, all who cast a hook in the Nile, and they will languish, who spreads nets on the water. The workers in combed flax will be in despair, and the weavers of white cotton, those who are the pillars of the land, will be crushed. And all who work for pay will be grieved. The princes of Zoan are utterly foolish. The wisest counsellors of Pharaoh give stupid counsel. How can you say to Pharaoh, I am a son of the wise, a son of ancient kings? Where then are your wise men? Let them tell you that they may not they may might know that the Lord of hosts has purposed against Egypt. The princes of Zoan have become fools, and the princes of Memphis are deluded. Those who are the cornerstone of her tribes have made Egypt stagger. The Lord has mingled within her a spirit of confusion, and they will make Egypt stagger in all its deeds, as a drunken man staggers in his vomit. There will be nothing for Egypt that hard head or tail, palm branch or reed may do. In that day the Egyptians will be like women and tremble with fear before the hand that the Lord of hosts shakes over them. And the land of Judah will become a terror to the Egyptians. Everyone to whom it is mentioned will fear because of the purpose that the Lord of hosts has purposed against them. In that day there will be five cities in the land of Egypt that speak the language of Canaan and swear allegiance to the Lord of hosts. One of these will be called the city of destruction. In that day there will be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt and a pillar to the Lord at its border. It will be a sign and a witness to the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt. When they cry to the Lord because of oppressors, he will send them a saviour and defender and deliver them.
And the Lord will make himself known to the Egyptians, and the Egyptians will know the Lord in that day, and worship with sacrifice and offering. They'll make vows to the Lord and perform them. And the Lord will strike Egypt, striking and healing. They will return to the Lord, and he will listen to their pleas for mercy and heal them. In that day there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria, and Assyria will come into Egypt, and Egypt into Assyria, and the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians. In that day Israel will be the third with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth, whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the works of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. In the year that the commander-in-chief, who was, went from speak, who was sent by Sargon, the king of Assyria, came to Ashdod and fought against it and captured it. At that time the Lord spoke by Isaiah, the son of Amos, saying, Go and loose the sackcloth from your waist, and take off your sandals from your feet. And he did so, walking naked and barefoot. Then the Lord said, As my servant Isaiah has walked naked and barefoot for three years, as a sign and a portent against Egypt and Cush. So shall the king of Assyria lead away the Egyptian captives and the Cushite exiles, both the young and the old, naked and barefoot, with buttocks uncovered, the nakedness of Egypt. Then they shall be dismayed and ashamed because of Cush their hope and of Egypt their boast. And the inhabitants of, the coast, of this coastland will say in that day, Behold, this is what has happened to those in whom we hoped and to whom we fled for help to be delivered from the king of Assyria. And we, how shall we escape? The oracle concerning the wilderness of the sea. As whirlwinds in the Negeb sweep on, it comes from the wilderness from a terrible land. A stern vision is told to me, the traitors betrays, and the destroyer destroys. Go up, O Elam, lay siege, O Media. All the sighing she has caused, I bring to an end. Therefore my loins are filled with anguish. Pangs have seized me, like the pangs of a woman in labour. I am bowed down so that I cannot hear. I am dismayed so that I cannot see. My heart staggers. Horror has appalled me. The twilight I longed for has been turned for me into trembling. They prepare the table, they spread the rugs, they eat, they drink. Arise, O princes, oil the shield. For thus the Lord said to me, Go set a watchman, let him announce what he sees. When he sees riders, horsemen in pairs, riders and donkeys, riders and camels, let him listen diligently, very diligently. Then he who saw cried out, Upon a watchtower I stand, O Lord, continually by day, and at my post I am stationed whole nights. And behold, here come riders, horsemen in pairs. And he answered, Fallen, fallen is Babylon, and all the carved images of her gods he has shattered to the grounds. O my threshed and winnowed one, what I have heard from the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, I announce to you. 
the oracle concerning Duma. One is calling to me from Seir. Watchman, what time of the night? Watchman, what time of the night? The watchman says, Morning comes and also the night. If you will inquire, inquire. Come back again. The oracle concerning Arabia. In the thickets in Arabia you will lodge, O caravans of Dedanites. To the thirsty bring water. Meet the fugitive with bread, O inhabitants of the land of Timah. For they have fled from the swords, from the drawn sword, from the bent bow, and from the press of battle. For thus the Lord said to me, Within a year, according to the years of a hired worker, the glory of Kedar will come to an end. And the remainder of the archers, of the mighty men, of the sons of Kedar, will be few. For the Lord, the God of Israel, has spoken. Well, we're going to have a look at that passage, or at least some of it, in a moment. But before we do, let me just remind you that there'll be question time at the end of the sermon. So do be prepared for that. You have a order of service, or a sermon outline rather, that you may wish to use. And finally, let's pray and ask God to help us. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this message given to us from Isaiah. And we pray, Lord, as we reflect on his words, that we'd appreciate that we are hearing your words. And help us to understand the meaning behind them, so that we might know and serve you better. Amen. Well, if you remember back in Isaiah 7, Israel made an alliance with Syria. Now, just to be clear, Israel is also referred to as Ephraim. So we could also say Ephraim made an alliance with Syria. Since Judah was worried about this new alliance, they chose to make an alliance with Assyria. Assyria did precisely what Judah had hoped. They destroyed Israel and Syria. However, they did not stop there. Once Assyria had finished with Israel and Assyria, they attacked Judah. The very alliance that Judah had hoped would save them was the very thing that brought their downfall. And so the question we might ask is, since the alliance with Assyria wasn't particularly productive, who will Judah make her next alliance with? And there are a number of options. Judah has two neighbouring nations to the south. They are Philistia and Moab. The people of Judah and the Philistines have had their differences. But since they're both at the mercy of the Assyrians, an alliance might be wise. Whereas Judah has a slightly warmer relationship with Moab than the relationship they have with the Philistines, Elimelech and Naomi, they lived in Moab during the famine. And eventually Ruth would be welcomed into Israel even though she was a Moab. However, there is a disagreement between the two nations as to who owned the land of Ammon. 
So now would be a good time to take advantage of the relationship and make a firm alliance. Alternatively, Judah could look to the north. Although Syria and Israel formed an alliance against them, now they're all in the same situation. Maybe they would be as well to join forces. Incidentally, just for sake of complete, completeness, Damascus is the capital of Syria. So Damascus and Syria are used interchangeably. Of course, Judah could go further afield. Maybe an alliance with Egypt would be a good option. So Judah has plenty of options. Now it's just a matter of making an informed decision on who to uh, make an alliance with. In order to help them make their choice, Isaiah provides the people of Judah with a perspective. And it all starts in verses 28 to 32 of chapter 14. First, Isaiah explores Philistia as an alliance. The Philistines, they've been hit hard by the Assyrians and presumably the rod that struck you that's now broken is the ruler of Assyria. But the Philistines are told, don't celebrate yet because from the serpent's root will come forth an adder which suggests the king, king's offspring will be much worse than the one that came before. And so it's Philistia that's broken, not Asteria. Philistia is under the judgment of God and the instrument which he uses to bring about his judgment is the Assyrian army. Philistia cannot help Judah. But the oracle does finish with these words at the end of chapter 14. The Lord has founded Zion, and in her the afflicted of his people find refuge. There is someone who can help Judah. He has helped Judah before. In fact, Judah owes her existence to him. This is the only place where genuine security can be found. Isaiah appears to suggest, as he's done before, that a better alliance would be to make one with the Creator than to make one with a nation under God's judgment. In chapter 15 and 16, Isaiah speaks of the devastation that Moab has experienced at the hands of Assyria. There's an empathy regarding the experience of the Moabites. Um, and in chapter 16, verses 3 to 4, Judah goes as far as to offer refuge to the people. Then we see this in chapter 16, verse 5. Then a throne will be established in steadfast love, and on it will sit in faithfulness, in the tent of David, one who judges and seeks justice and is swift to do righteousness. <clears throat> I 
Moab has been oppressed, but they can hope for an end to that. But the end to their oppression comes when a king sits on the throne of David. The one who sits on the throne of David will be known for faithfulness, justice and righteousness. And these attributes will mean that oppression will be unable to coexist. And so we see, once again, it's a mistake to make an alliance with Moab. Moab, well, they'll be refugees. They too are under God's judgment. And Isaiah explains that Judah's only hope for refuge, or rather Moab's only hope for refuge, is in the same hope that Judah has. Their hope is in the same place that Judah has put her hope, or should put her hope. In God, installing the king on the throne of David. When God installs his king on the throne of David, it will not only be for the benefit of Judah, but for every nation. And if we saw back in Isaiah 2, verses 1 to 4, on that day all nations will come to Judah so they can know the Lord. In chapter 17, Isaiah's attention moves to the northern nations, Israel or Ephraim, Damascus or, or Syria. While verse 1 speaks of an oracle to Damascus, we soon see, soon see it's as much about Israel as it is about Damascus, if not more. These two cities, as we've said already, have made an alliance. So here they're treated as one. And in chapter 17, verse 3, we read this. The fortress will disappear from Ephraim and the kingdom from Damascus. And the remnant of Syria will be like the glory of the children of Israel, declares the Lord of hosts. Both Syria and Ephraim will lose their kingdoms. Both will lose their glory. Glory is being recognised by the other nations. It's about making an impression. And there's a permanence to true glory. But the glory that Israel has achieved has been achieved by their own merits. And this glory is quickly taken away from them. And once Israel is reduced to little more than nothing, when they've been stripped of their glory, it's then, as we see in verse 7, that they will look once again to their maker. There's no point in Judah looking to Israel for an alliance. They have been reduced to nothing. And when they've been reduced to nothing... That's when they'll go back and put their hope in God. Which is the very place where Judah should put her hope. Finally, Isaiah turns to Egypt. And Isaiah explains how God will oppose Egypt. In verses 1 to 4 of chapter 19, 
God demonstrates the weakness of Egypt's idols. In verses 5 to 10, Egypt will be compromised. They'll have no water. They'll have no fish to eat. In verses 11 to 15, the wisdom of Egypt will be confused by God. And so Judah shouldn't see Egypt as an attractive ally because they have nothing to offer. They'll have no religion, no physical presence, and no wisdom to bring to an alliance. Then in the remainder of chapter 19, Egypt will be in terror of the God of Judah. And what's described here is a redemption for Egypt. But the passage goes even further than that, because even Assyria will be included in this redemption. Five times, from verses 16 to the end of the chapter, the phrase, in that day, is used. Which makes it clear that this is something that will happen at the end times. And so this makes yet another compelling reason why an alliance with Egypt would be a mistake. Egypt will one day find redemption. And that redemption will be found from the God of Judah. Egypt will depend upon Judah's God for salvation. And so in the meantime it will be futile to make an alliance with Egypt when Egypt will be will one day find redemption from the God that Judah should be serving. So for Judah to make an alliance with another nation is for Judah to put their trust in that other nation. And to make an alliance with another nation is for there to be something in that nation that makes them believe that the nation are able to help them and give them an advantage over their enemy. But what Isaiah has demonstrated is there is no nation that deserves Judah's trust. There is no nation that's able to help them. And at the same time, Isaiah has revealed where their trust should be placed. Every nation is under the judgment of God. Any nation that does succeed only does so as a consequence of God using them to wield his judgment. Even when a nation succeeds, they do so under God's providence and for his purpose. So really, the nation only appears to succeed. Proud they will boast of their success. And as a result, God will one day humble them once again. Every nation belongs to God. And the only hope for any nation is that on the final day, every nation turns to God for redemption. And so Isaiah is quite clear. An alliance is not to be made. Well, at least not with any nation. Instead, Judah should put her trust in God, who proves beyond doubt that he has the ability to save his people. For everything happens, happens according to his plan and purpose. For the earth is the Lord's. What then does this mean for us? 
Well, we live in a different phase of redemptive history. In fact, we live in the time when a lot of what Isaiah speaks of has now happened. God has installed a king upon the throne of David. And salvation has gone out to the nations. There are people over the whole world who have found redemption through the king of Judah. But this doesn't mean that what Isaiah writes has no relevance to us. Rather, it highlights all the more where our hope should be. Isaiah's warning to his people was simply, do not make an alliance with any nation, because they all belong to God and are under his judgment. One day they will seek the God of Judah for their salvation. Well, that salvation is now here. And so now is the time to seek out God and his king and to make our alliance with them. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this fairly comprehensive uh, exploration by Isaiah of the many nations that Judah could put her confidence in. We thank you as we see this message repeated and retold that we would take on board that there is no nation worthy of the trust of Judah. As we reflect on this, might we see that where our trust should be placed in the Lord and your anointed one. So we pray, Lord, that for now and evermore, that's where our confidence would be. Amen. Well, any questions or comments in light of what we've been thinking about this morning? Yes, Mackie. Yeah, so Isaiah's done a lot of talking about Assyria, but then sort of at the end he goes over again back to Babylon. Um, uh, in this, we know that Babylon is really in the air. So, what's going on? Is he sort of grappling all up, or is he talking about what's, what's going to come and what's going to happen to Babylon in the future? Interesting question. Yes. So uh, Adrian sent us on a, um, a trajectory last week, didn't he, where he decided or he said uh, Babylon is a is used um, sort of metaphorically for proud nations. So what I'll do is I think he's explored that. I might leave that question for Adrian to answer next week if that's all right, because I haven't looked at that bit. So. Yeah, so as far as I'm aware, I'm still reading it as kind of what you were suggesting, that Babylon is going to get its comeuppance, even though it's not yet arrived. But I think what Adrian's suggesting is that Babylon is a symbolism for pride. And so maybe as we come to the end of this section, um, it's getting 
finalise with, you know, sort of, let's talk about the proud city par excellence, Babylon, and show that that proud city um, will not get, you know, that will one day be brought down as well. I think that's fair enough, Adrian? Oh, is it? Yeah. But yeah, that's an idea that's new to me. I mean, it's something we we have talked about it in Revelation, haven't we? But I guess I was thinking more that it wasn't until we got to Revelation that that truly sunk in, that final kind of like Babylon is the city, the city of pride par excellence. Oh, in Revelation. Yeah. I guess we can have that flexibility, can't we? Yeah. Uh, Nathan. Yeah, um, chapter 18. Um, oh. <laughs> yes, chapter 18. Well, I mean, the, the heading supplied by the editor says, an oracle concerning good, but there seem very clear markers in the text when a new oracle begins. And chapter 18 seems to have one. Um, so, just a query of whether or not it's actually the end of the article concerning Damascus and Israel, or, or whether it is its own article, and if so, how do we how do we land there while appreciating the structure of the text? Yes, good question. Let me just repeat that for the recording. So when we get to chapter eighteen. We don't have that repeated refrain, an oracle concerning, and therefore we might expect Cush at the start of chapter 18. So we could conclude that what's written in chapter 18 is just a continuation of the oracle concerning Damascus. Um, have we got any other reason to think otherwise? Yeah, very good question. So interestingly, I don't know whether you noticed, I think in verse 12 of chapter 17, we do seem to have a change of subject there. Not that it's a new oracle, but there the attention seems to be on um, possibly the Assyrians. So 12 to 14, the commentator suggests that's referring to the Assyrians. So, ah, the thunder of many peoples, they thunder like the thundering of the sea, ah, the roar of nations, they roar like the roaring of mighty waters. The nations roar like the roaring of many waters, but he will rebuke them and they will flee away, fly far away, chase like chaff on the mountain before the wind, and whirlwind dust before the storm. At evening time, behold, terror. Before morning, they are no more. This is the portion of those who looters and the lot of those who plunderers. So the idea being there is, um, you know the Assyrians, those who are plundering, those who are looters, those who appear to be like a thunder. Well, they're going to be, they're going to terrorize you um, in the evening, but by the next morning they're going to be gone. So, suggesting that if it is Assyria, there's a brevity and a temporal nature to their um, terror. So, then when we get to chapter 18, we've already moved on. It is in. It's not, yeah, so when we get to chapter 18 and it starts talking about 
the rivers of Cush. The commentator just suggests that it's moving further out towards Egypt. So sort of um, that it's not a new oracle as such, but rather Cush's um, yeah, because actually if we go to chapter 20, it's Egypt and Cush. So chapter 20, verse 3, Then the Lord said, As my servant Isaiah has walked naked and barefoot for three years, as a sign and a portent against Egypt and Cush. So Cush and Egypt get cursed together. And I think Cush is very close to, or uh, part of Egypt. So, yeah, I don't think it is a separate oracle, so I think that title's quite unhelpful. Uh, but I think it's uh, a helpful stepping stone to get us to Oracle 19, which is in Egypt. But on that, I, I did read all the stuff on Chapter 18, but I don't think the commentator knows what's going on either. So whatever you do, don't help ask me who the people who are tall and smooth are, because I, I really don't know. Is that all right? Of chapter 18. Cool. Should we leave it there, or has anyone got another one that they're desperate to squeeze in? Yes, Nikki. Good question, yeah, interesting. Um, okay, so let's have a look. 16 verse 1, so just repeat the question. In 16 verse 1 it says, send the lamb to the ruler of the land. Who's that speaking of? Let's just have a quick look. So 16 verse 1, send the lamb to the ruler of the land from Selah by way of the desert to the mount of the daughter of Zion. Like fling birds, like a scattered nest, so are the daughters of Moab at the fords of the Arnon. Um, so I've not thought about it in any detail apart from now. I guess so. I guess there's two options. I guess we could see, uh, we could think, oh, lamb, and think Jesus. Um, but also, I think possibly there's been quite a lot of talk of animals, and when a city has been desolated, then it's the animals that fills the desolated city. Um, so the thing that imagery keeps coming up. I guess another thing. Oh no, maybe not. I was going to say. So send the lamb to the ruler of the land. From cellar by way of the desert. Yeah, I don't know. I'll have a look at the commentary and see whether it. Yeah, but I don't think it's Jesus. <laughs> okay. Let's leave it there. Uh, we'll have a moment's reflection in a moment. But before we do, we're going to stand to sing King of Kings Majesty. <laughs> 